Welcome to Indo-Pacific Affairs, a podcast devoted to tackling the wicked problems facing policymakers, academicians, military leaders, and others in the Indo-Pacific region. Affiliated with Air University's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs and the Air Command and Staff College's eSchool, the podcast features interviews with the top names in academia, government, and think tanks from around the region. Disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast are those of the participants and should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, Air Education and Training Command, Air University, or other agencies or departments of the U.S. government or their international equivalents. This is the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. Welcome to the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs podcast. I'm Dr. Jared McKinney, and with me here as well is Lieutenant Colonel Miller. And today we are talking with Ambassador Dan Shields, currently an editorial advisor at our own Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs. From 2011 to 2014, Ambassador Shields served as Ambassador to Brunei, which chaired ASEAN in 2013, making this a critical time especially as the South China Sea issue was looming large. From 2015 to 18, Ambassador Shields served as the diplomatic advisor at the U.S. Army War College, helping educate future strategic leaders on how to integrate the diplomatic, informational, military, and economic instruments of power. In 2017, he also served as the charge at the U.S. mission to ASEAN in Jakarta. Ambassador Shields, we're lucky to have you today. Welcome to the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. Thank you. It's great to join you here today. My first question is focused on your your time and experience in Brunei. Brunei is a small but wealthy nation in Southeast Asia, second only to Singapore in terms of GDP per capita. Yet, this nation is not well known to Americans. Can you give our listeners some context on Brunei, where it's situated and why it's worth talking about today? So Brunei is located... uh, In general terms, it's close to Singapore. So if you can find Singapore on the map, then you can uh, get to Brunei. And some of the interesting things about Brunei are its character as a Malay Islamic monarchy. So it's a small country about the size of uh, Delaware, uh, but because it it is wealthy and because it sits uh, uh, adjacent to the South China Sea, uh, Brunei is a place that has important uh, strategic implications. In the three years you lived there, what was your experience like uh, living there, serving American interests in the region? Working in Brunei was uh, fascinating for me because I had uh, worked in a a number of uh, different uh, embassies before that, but never one where the system was quite as different from our system in the United States as the Brunei system is. Um, We don't have anything resembling an absolute monarchy in this country, so just trying to understand how that works and how to get things done to advance U.S. interests and U.S. Brunei cooperation in the context of a Malay Islamic monarchy was very challenging and uh, fascinating. Brunei is a member of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. How would you describe Brunei's relationship both with ASEAN and with China? So uh, Brunei is... uh, an early member of ASEAN. It's not one of the original five countries that established ASEAN. But as soon as Brunei became fully independent from the UK in 1984, 
uh, Brunei, one of the first things they did was move to join ASEAN. So they've been in ASEAN for a long time. And they're a, a, a trusted and strong partner and leader within ASEAN. Um, in terms of Brunei-China relations, uh, they enjoy a warm relationship. Um, I think from the Brunei perspective, they understand that uh, China is uh, an enormous force in the, uh, in the region, uh, in, in every realm, whether it's uh, political, economic, uh, military, etc. And for uh, a relatively small country like Brunei, it's critical that they find a way to, uh, to get along with China. But at the same time, uh, Brunei will uh, do what it can to stand up for and advocate for its own interests and values. How did you see that working in 2013 when Brunei hosted the, the ASEAN meetings that year? So that year uh, came right after the, uh, the year 2012 uh, when Cambodia had been the, the chair of ASEAN. Of course, Cambodia is the chair again this year. That was a, 2012 was a troubled year for ASEAN because for the first time in the history of the organization, they were unable to issue the traditional foreign minister's communique. And the reason was because of uh, disputes within ASEAN over South China Sea-related issues. So um, Cambodia, as the chair, was unable to issue a statement. What that meant was in 2013, when Brunei came in as the chair, it was very important to move to reestablish a standard ASEAN positions on the South China Sea and on other issues. And Brunei was very effectively able to rise to that challenge. One thing I've long wondered, as the smallest member of ASEAN and with the country with the smallest claims in the South China Sea dispute, is there um, an opportunity or perhaps a danger that Brunei is going to negotiate a special deal with China vis-a-vis -vis the territorial disputes in order, from China's perspective, to split ASEAN, but from Brunei's perspective, to get a good deal? Well, I think that's not only true of Brunei, but I think the, the various claimants all tend to look at the issue through a bilateral lens in terms of their relationship with China. So um, they, they just have never agreed to uh, negotiate as a bloc. And uh, China, of course, would be very averse to moves in that direction. So I think Brunei, like the other ASEAN claimants, does tend to see the issue in bilateral terms with regard to uh, Brunei-China relations. And if uh, a deal could be struck that would uh, protect Brunei's uh, interests and its values, then I think Brunei would make such a deal. But uh, I, my expectation is that Brunei will hold out to uh, maintain uh, Brunei's sovereign interests. Hmm. It, it seems to me if China is a rational decision maker, it seems like they might see the incentives aligned there. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised the deal hasn't been offered. Do you know if there's um, how intense negotiations might be back room on that question? Uh, of course, it's only Brunei and China know exactly what's going on in uh, discussions between them. But my understanding is that uh, China has generally taken a uh, slow approach on, in dealing with the various uh, ASEAN claimants on these issues. I think the perception in Beijing has probably been that time is on China's side. There's no rush to uh, settle these uh, these issues. And in the case of a country like Brunei, there, there's no great tension surrounding the uh, issue either. So uh, my sense is that things have been uh, moving uh, pretty slowly in, on that uh, discussion. One related question. Brunei is a member of the original Trans-Pacific Partnership. 
And now this, the TPP is called the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, CPTPP. What China is trying to join this agreement right now, um, do, do you think that's possible? Is it likely? What, what are we likely to see play out in the next year or two as this question is considered? So uh, my understanding is that as the TPP was uh, initially developed, the idea was that it would be open to any country that was able to fully meet the standards of the then the TPP, now CPTPP. So in theory, if China fully met all the standards in uh, CPTPP, uh, China would be eligible to join. The question is whether China can really meet those standards. Uh, at this point, uh, my sense is China is pretty far away from where we need to be to, uh, to meet the extremely ambitious uh, high standards of uh, the CPTPP. So I don't think it's anything that's uh, imminent. But I do think that it's important for the United States, after having started the TPP negotiations and then having uh, stepped back and uh, basically walked away from uh, TPP, to develop some kind of uh, credible alternative to put forward. And that's why I'm watching with a lot of interest the Biden administration's efforts to develop some kind of an economic framework for the Indo-Pacific, because I think that we do need to have some kind of uh, flagship initiative, if you will, with regard to the economic aspect of the U.S. relationship with the other countries in the Indo-Pacific. Is that possible, given domestic political considerations in America? I mean, it, does this new framework, are we talking about calling existing frameworks by a different name, or are we talking about something genuinely new? Well, we, we don't know yet what will be in the framework. It hasn't been announced. Um, but, but I actually think it is uh, quite possible to come up with something that's uh, new and that's important because uh, with the pandemic and other developments, we've seen the vulnerability of our existing supply chain. So clearly something has to be changed uh, in terms of assuring the reliability of supply chains. So I think that is one example of the kind of issue that some new framework could address. Hi, Ambassador Shields. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Miller. I'd like to transition and ask you a few questions about professional military education. So as a former State Department official who has taught at the Army War College, how should PME instructors think, articulate, and teach the different instruments of power? Thanks. I, I, I appreciate that, uh, that question. I, I think that uh, the senior service colleges and, and the various professional military uh, education institutions are, play a critical role in terms of addressing the various uh, instruments of power. There, there are a few other uh, educational entities out there that are looking systematically about how to integrate whether you use the traditional dime formulation, diplomacy, information, military, and economic, or one of the more expansive frameworks. My own experience was uh, as a student at the National War College uh, back in 2000 and 2001, it was a real eye-opener for me to get some exposure uh, to the military instruments and economics and information when I had been focused on the diplomatic side. And I think it's true on the military side as well that they, the students derive tremendous benefit from the exposure to the full range of instruments. I think if they aspire to be strategic leaders, they need to be familiar with all four instruments and other instruments as well, if you count things like law enforcement or finance, one of the more expansive definitions, but they need to be able to address the full gamut. 
So following up on that question, um, in our PME system, our students have a good understanding of military power, but less on diplomatic power. What is it that military officers do not understand about diplomacy? How can we better integrate or teach our students the value of diplomacy? So I think there are several misconceptions about diplomacy, not just among PME students, but uh, within the broader American discussion of, of diplomacy. I think one common misunderstanding is that diplomacy is really all about negotiations. Uh, but interestingly, if you go to a U.S. embassy, especially a bilateral embassy conducting relations with a particular foreign country, you'll find that our diplomats are not spending much of their time negotiating. It's more a matter of communicating with the other government about a range of issues. But the idea of sitting down and negotiating a text, for example, that's not most of what uh, diplomats do. Now, the, the context in which that is done is in uh, multilateral diplomacy at institutions like the UN. Or when I was at the US mission to ASEAN, for example, and we worked with the 10 members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, we spent a fair amount of time on that kind of diplomacy, which really is about negotiation. But I think that's a pretty common uh, misunderstanding of the relationship between diplomacy and negotiation. Ambassador Shields, ASEAN members have been negotiating a code of conduct for the South China Sea for many, many years. What's the current status of the code of conduct? Uh, what are the obstacles on actually getting to ratification? So, yes, the uh, code of conduct uh, negotiations are continuing. Um, it's been going on for, for many years since the original declaration on conduct in the South China Sea back in 2002. Um, Cambodia, as the chair of ASEAN this year, uh, is, is trying to continue efforts to move forward on a, a code of conduct. But uh, my own view is that it's going to be very uh, difficult uh, for there to be uh, significant progress this year. Um, things slowed down in recent years largely because of the pandemic. Um, the Chinese side seems more interested uh, in moving ahead uh, fast than they had been in, in previous years. But I think there is concern among some of the ASEAN claimants about what form this code of conduct will take. Um, again, only the people at the negotiating table know what's really in the draft uh, code of conduct and what's not in there. But uh, judging from media reports and so on, there seem to be concerns about Chinese efforts to insert language into the code of conduct that would promote a kind of regional exclusivism that would favor China and ASEAN over outside parties when it comes to, for example, conducting military exercises in the South China Sea or doing economic uh, development, uh, energy development, and so on in the South China Sea. And I think there are a number of countries in ASEAN that would have concerns about establishing that kind of a framework through a code of conduct. So I don't expect much to happen this year. Next year, when Cambodia will be the chair of ASEAN, I think there's uh, more of a chance that the kind of code of conduct that would be able to win broad support in ASEAN could be negotiated. What sort of powers or influence specifically does uh, a rotating chair of ASEAN possess? So I think that's one of the, the key things about ASEAN that may not be too widely understood among people who don't follow ASEAN particularly closely that the, uh, the rotating chair system, with it rotating among the 10 ASEAN countries, uh, generally following English alphabetical order, but with some exceptions, 
but that that system really vests agenda-setting power in the chair. And uh, ASEAN is quite different from an organization like the uh, EU, for example, where in the, in the EU, uh, there's a very strong secretariat that can drive things forward. In ASEAN, although they have a very competent secretariat, very talented people, but it's small and has limited resources, and it's not expected to drive a substantive agenda. As a result, the chairs become tremendously powerful. And so this year with Cambodia in the chair, uh, it's going to be challenging to, uh, to move things forward on some sensitive issues. But I think next year with Indonesia in the chair, there's an opportunity to address some of the issues that have been pending in the region. You represented U.S. interests in Indonesia in 2017. Since then, one of the trends I've noticed is that uh, the West tends to ignore Indonesia despite the fact that it's the largest and potentially most powerful state in ASEAN. Why do people ignore Indonesia, and, and what should be done about that? Well, I think the, the Biden administration, and of course I'm just speaking for myself, I don't work for the U.S. government anymore, but uh, I think the Biden administration has really been making efforts with, uh, with Indonesia. I, I think they get it. Indonesia is uh, the linchpin in, in many ways of uh, ASEAN. And uh, I, I'm pretty confident. We have an excellent uh, U.S. ambassador out there in Indonesia, Ambassador Song Kim, who also wears the other hat of being in charge of the negotiations with North Korea on the nuclear issue once those get underway. Uh, so he's a very talented person, and we, we really have uh, some of our, our best people working on U.S.-Indonesia relations. So I'm, I'm pretty confident. The other interesting thing, of course, is Indonesia's plan to move its uh, capital uh, from uh, from Jakarta to a, a new capital on Borneo in, in a few years. So uh, I think that'll be a very uh, interesting and important development. And actually, I'm working on an article for the journal about that subject. I look forward to reading it. Thank you. So, sir, you have a lot of experience in the Indo-Pacific region. You've worked in Singapore, Japan, China, and the Philippines. What is the regional sentiment towards the growing U.S.-China tensions? Is the region more or less secure with a more assertive China? So I think that uh, people looking at U.S.-China tensions from Southeast Asia are, are very uh, uncomfortable. As, as the tensions increase, I think uh, people in Southeast Asia worry very much about what the implications for them might be. Um, you often hear the refrain from uh, Southeast Asian and ASEAN leaders that we don't want to choose between the United States and China. And I think that's very much the way that they, they view the, the situation. Um, in terms of Chinese assertiveness in the region, I think there are concerns. Um, uh, many in ASEAN will not want to express those concerns in a, in a public way, but I think there, there are concerns when China does become uh, assertive. And uh, I think the, the hope is that by keeping a variety of players engaged in the region, uh, a kind of balance can be achieved. So it's not just China and the United States, uh, but certainly uh, India and Australia and Japan, uh, of course, uh, the Quad partners, the European Union, uh, various other players, I think all have a role to play in Southeast Asia and to help keep the, the region relatively uh, open uh, to the world. Sir, ASEAN is now a fairly mature organization they were established on 8 August 1967, so about 54 years old as an organization. What are some key challenges that ASEAN faces in the next decade? So uh, 
I was uh, out at the U.S. mission to ASEAN in 2017, so that was the 50th anniversary of ASEAN. So it was a very interesting time to reflect on ASEAN's history and what ASEAN had been able to accomplish. And some people criticize ASEAN as not uh, achieving rapid progress on difficult issues. But I think if you look at it over the, the longer term, ASEAN actually has been able to accomplish some pretty significant things. Uh, one would be, which I think is its undisputed achievement of preventing conflict between its members. I think that has been a critical accomplishment of, uh, of ASEAN. With a couple minor, minor exceptions, they've been able to avoid that. Um, the other thing, uh, I think a not sufficiently celebrated success of ASEAN has been its ability to integrate the countries that were emerging from the instability surrounding the Vietnam War into the region. So Vietnam is certainly uh, a classic case of uh, success. And uh, it's been a bit more challenging with uh, Cambodia and Laos and, of course, uh, significant problems now in Burma or Myanmar. Uh, but still, I think ASEAN's role in integrating these mainland Southeast Asia countries fully into the region has been critically important. Uh, looking to the future, I think that uh, ASEAN emphasizes this idea of ASEAN centrality and outside players like the United States and China and Russia, India, we're willing to accept that idea of ASEAN centrality because we know that it's in the interest of all of us to look at ASEAN as being at the center of the region and it avoids a situation where one of the other players tries to define itself as at the center of the region. So I think uh, ASEAN will continue to work on uh, political and security issues, on economic issues, on cultural issues, try to move toward uh, greater integration. But I think the fundamental test will be ASEAN's ability to solve pressing issues of the moment, like what's happening in Burma or Myanmar, and uh, ultimately to move toward uh, diplomatic progress or even resolution on the South China Sea. Sir, one last question for you. For readers interested in Southeast Asia, what do you recommend they read? Where should they look? What should they follow? There, there are so many uh, interesting uh, books and articles and so on about uh, Southeast Asia. Um, uh, I'm certainly uh, a fan in terms of keeping up with day-to-day uh, -day developments. I think the diplomat does a very good job of outlining what's happening in the region. Um, the, uh, the observer of ASEAN, whom I, I like and I, I look to often for his insights, is uh, Bill Harry Kausakan, a former senior uh, Singapore diplomat who has written for Foreign Affairs and other uh, publications about Southeast Asia. But I think he really offers some pretty profound insights into the region. Yes, sir, I can echo that. I, I heard him speak while I was doing my PhD in Singapore, and I, I found him quite insightful as well. Yes, and very candid. Absolutely. Uh, Ambassador Dan Shields, thank you for joining the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs podcast today. We look forward to hosting you again. Thanks very much. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Indo-Pacific Affairs podcast. We hope you enjoyed the interview. You can engage with our interviewees, authors, and others via our Twitter feed, at journal underscore Indo. You can also interact with us on the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs Facebook and LinkedIn sites.